Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. I think you'll really enjoy this month's episode. We visit with the executive director of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, Dr. Brad Kabeca. Dr. Rollins joins Brad to talk about activities at the ranch, research that's underway, and the good things happening in support of Texas quail. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Thank you, Gary. It's always good to hear from you. It was great to see you most recently at the Bob White Brigade. I appreciate your efforts over there. Had a great week over there. Uh, we're recording this in the middle of June, and we haven't a we haven't reached the summer solstice yet, but we've already had perhaps 25 days, 100 degree heat, and the forecast looks for more of the same. So a lot of us with an uneasy feeling that it's deja vu all over again for 2011, and we certainly hope that weather pattern changes soon. Got a special guest with y'all today, someone that you've heard from before. Now it's Dr. Brad Kubechka. Uh, we visited with Brad about a year or so ago when he was completing his PhD research at the University of Georgia. But uh, Brad completed that in, in flying colors. And as of uh, June of 2021, he succeeded me as the executive director for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. So welcome aboard, Brad. We're glad to have you. And why don't you just, uh, why don't you just repeat a little bit of your odyssey about how you got here and, and then we'll move on from there. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I started with the research ranch as a technician slash intern back in 2013. So this marks my 10th nesting season, I believe, something like that, um, working with or on the ranch. And uh, I went from being an intern to a graduate student with the Research Foundation and then uh, completed my PhD at the University of Georgia in, in uh, collaboration with Tall Timbers. And uh, after I finished my PhD, uh, I worked on founding and establishing a new program in East Texas. I'm sure we'll chat about a little bit today. And, um, and then of course, uh, the new executive director um, position at the Research Foundation. So um, all in all kind of been uh, tied in with Texas quails over the last, Ten years, I guess, and uh, no end in sight. And you are a native of uh, Fayette County, I believe, down around Flatonia. Is that correct? Yep, graduated high school from Flatonia with a um, class of about forty-three. Didn't have many quail growing up in that area. We had we were a few hours from any good quail populations around there, and, and that's what kind of piqued my interest about Bob White, is because when I got to college, I wanted to do something a little more different, uh, and you know. Seemed like everybody was interested in white-tailed deer and pigs and bass, ducks, all that good stuff. But quail was um, was something different for me, so that's what I um, kind of ventured out on and and got hooked. Well, I remember very well our first meeting over in Stephenville. You were a sophomore there at Tarleton State and asked me to come over and talk to your wildlife society uh, meeting, and I did. And uh, we started up a friendship there that's lasted for the last 
10 or 12 years. And again, Brad is, if you haven't had a chance to meet him or visit with him, Brad is extremely sharp. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want get to his, get his head too big, but uh, he's a very sharp individual, has a great command of the literature and uh, knows a whole lot about quail. So I couldn't ask for anybody more qualified to follow in my footsteps uh, as executive director. We're glad to have him aboard. And Brad, let's uh, start maybe with just an update on how things are going at the ranch right now here in uh, late June. Well, it's hot and dry and everybody uh, may predict that that doesn't bode well for, for quail. And for the most part, that is true. But on the ranch itself, um, things are about average as last year. Our survival is, is right up there on, um, on par. It's, it's not like our survivalist tank. Um, our nest initiation rates are good. About half of our nest to, or half of our hens to date have laid a nest. So they're right on track with getting about a nest per hen uh, for the season, which is considered good. Um, so things seem to be just beat bopping along. I don't know that we're going to have a big boom. I don't think that we're going to have a crash, but just like the last couple of years, I think we're just going to be relatively stable, um, similar population abundance to what we've seen last year. Hearing about four cocks per stop um, on average, our, our whistle counts. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's about how it's going. And we have a lot of new research that we're, we're picking up. And nest success is um, done well. Um, so far, we're in the 70s, 70% range, which is very, very good and, and high for nest success. But um, we've only had about 16 um, nests that have hatched or failed so far. So that's a small sample size. But things are going pretty good on, on the ranch itself. And definitely attribute that, though, to good habitat management. And I, I believe other folks that are managing well are going to see similar things. Well, I was at the ranch most recently, maybe 10 days ago, and I'm always proud to drive across it. And, and really the harder the conditions get in the surrounding areas, uh, I think the more proud I am of the way the Quail Research Ranch looks. That looks great. And uh, I just, uh, I'm hoping that those, uh, the habitat quality, if you will, and quantity parlay into a, a pretty nice, um, not a strong rebound, but it, like you said, at least some effort towards being better than the last three years or so. Brad, I got ahead of myself. Um, you have a joint appointment with Tall Timbers Research Station, and you have some other affiliations with Tall Timbers Research. So why don't we digress just a moment? Uh, we often, we always speak highly of the efforts down there at Tall Timbers. And the personnel of and so tell us about uh, what your relationship is with Tall Timbers and kind of how that came to be. Uh, well, my PhD work was funded largely through uh, Tall Timbers and, and Park City Squell Coalition, uh, but it it was my research was on Tall Timbers and on Livingston Place, which is also owned by Tall Timbers. It's where the Continental Field Trial has been held for nearly a hundred years, and my PhD work was on on chick ecology or brood ecology. And when I was finishing my PhD, I always had this kind of idea that, you know, it'd be really cool uh, to do something in East Texas. And, and had I not moved out of, it, out of Texas, I would have never thought anything was possible in East Texas as far as quail management. Uh, it's kind of just been neglected, I guess. <laughs> and uh, when I moved to the Southeast and saw what the folks there were doing, I was really impressed and I was like, there's no reason that we couldn't do this in East Texas. 
but we needed a vehicle really to put that in motion. And uh, fortuitously, there was a benefactor, Chuck Ryblin out, out of Dallas said that I would really like to see Paul Timmer's model in Texas. And um, we said, well, this is how we might want to structure it. We would maybe want an endowed chair to make sure that that position and that, that kind of um, program was secured in that area. And then, then like many other programs, secure annual grants for projects and stuff like that. So in uh, 2021, we, uh, we embarked on that. That was also about the same time that we were having discussions. The foundation had reached out to me and asked me what my plans were um, following graduation. So um, it made a lot of sense uh, with the growth of that program um, just starting off and what I consider um, the foundation being in a phase of growth. We're always growing, right? So uh, it made a lot of sense to share that leadership and so about 58% of my appointment is through Paul Timbers and 42% uh, shared with the Research Foundation. And with different appointments in each one, uh, we have an administrative staff and, and bookkeepers and all that stuff at Paul Timbers. So less of my time in East Texas is spent on administration and, and more on research and outreach. Whereas at the ranch, I, I spend a little more time with administration and a little less with, uh, with research and outreach. But uh, that, that's generally, in a nutshell, how that appointment um, is kind of set up. Well, a shout out to Dr. Palmer and Clay Sisson and all the others uh, down there at the Tall Timbers. I've always enjoyed my relationships with them. But you left out one, what I would consider a key ingredient, and, and that was your wife, Christine. Tell us about how y'all met. I met Christine at the research ranch in 2015. Uh, and, you know, I told myself, well, she's, she's really great, but she's from Florida, and I'm from Texas, and that, that ain't going to work out. Um, I was going down to Kingsville for my uh, master's at the time, and we would meet in New Orleans and maintain a great friendship, which obviously evolved, and um, I guess, small disclaimer, I, I didn't know Christine's dad was um, Bill Palmer at the time. I didn't really know who Bill Palmer was. <laughs> Um, way back then, that was eight years ago, I just kind of started getting in the world of well research and management, um, and it just so happened that um, Christine, Christine's dad was also interested in, in quail and done a bunch of quail research and um, involved with tall timbers as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's all in the family. <laughs> yeah, it's all in the family, and it's uh, more than serendipity, son. It's, it's destiny. So, again, shout out to Christine. Uh, she did a great job for us, and I know she's in the, um, I think she got her RN degree now, is, is working in Houston. She's a, a very uh, fine young lady and also a great quail shot if her husband doesn't hog shoot her on a cubby rise, and I've seen that happen before. Too. I swear, Dr. Rollins, uh, I set her up for the shot every time. They just never fly that way. I guarantee you, I really think that's where the bird's going to come out. And I'm, if I were being selfish, I'd probably usually take her, her position, but usually the birds never go where you think they're going to go. And I end up with a shot. Didn't make me look too good. <laughs> but and that's I his story really and he's up. sticking to it, folks. That's my story. <laughs> okay, Brad, uh, again, while we're on the subject of your PhD research, give us a, a brief uh, summary. You were working on chicks and uh, the diets of chicks and using some DNA technology to basically study what they were consuming their diets. So what's the update on that? What did you find out? Yeah, so uh, we did a lot of little things with chicks and I had some side projects while I was um, doing my PhD with 
flush counts and you know and then with with what they were using as far as resources uh, and in that part of the world you know about half of these properties are burnt every year um dry fire that is and uh and so we wanted to see how those broods were using that habitat fire in that area is usually applied uh, February, March, April time period, and that precedes nesting season, right before nesting season. So the question was, well, how are they using this habitat? Um, we, what we found was that about 71% of the nests were hatched in non-burned up ones, hatches that were burned the previous year. But there was a strong selection of those, those, those burned patches. Um, typically, these, these, the scale of the fire is about 20 to 50 acres. So typically, they were going to hatch somewhere within a decent proximity to a burn patch. And uh, what we found was not only that there was a, a strong selection of those burn patches, we were looking at, at supplemental feed in the relationship to where they were using on the landscape in relation to feed lines. And what we found was there was a strong selection for distance to feed line. So most of the time we were seeing broods closer to feed line um, than what would be expected by chance. And that was stronger, the strength of that selection for feed lines was stronger in the patches that were burned the previous year than, than the current year. And so that, that led to the next question, well, maybe that's because of maybe quote unquote poor quality of um, poorer quality of food resources. But we were able to collect fecal samples from all these broods. We, we tracked these birds five times a day and collect the fecal samples from them from the roost disc immediately after um, they left the roost in the morning. And we extracted the DNA and was essentially blasted it against a, a reference database. And we were able to see, you know, kind of arthropods that they were eating. And one of the key things that we wanted to look at was the use of supplemental feed. And what we found was that the occurrence of that supplemental feed, based off of the evidence that we were able to really recover from that, the occurrence of that supplemental feed really didn't differ between the non-burn and the burn patches. So essentially what I would speculate is they're probably just using those, uh, those feed lines more um, in the, or there's a stronger selection of those feed lines more in the non-burned areas just because it's so rank and they could have been using it for travel and mobility. Um, because we would have expected maybe that there would have been more sorghum in those diets if they were quote unquote compensating or something like that. Most, for the most part, diets were similar between those burned and non-burned patches, which really we're talking about a difference of nine months in burn recency between the quote unquote burned and non-burned areas. So uh, not much of a difference in, the, in the, the diets. However, this was kind of, in my mind, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but you know, most folks don't think of chicks consuming much plant material or sorghum or, or grain, grain sorghum milo for that matter. But from our data, it suggested that uh, chicks were using the sorghum at a very early age, and there was actually no relationship between age and the occurrence of sorghum in the diet. So if they found it, they were likely to pick it up and eat it. Um, which, which makes sense. They were still eating arthropods, and, and this isn't to say that arthropods and those bugs aren't incredibly important at protein, amino acids that those provide, but uh, they were definitely using that supplemental feed. And uh, there just really hasn't been any study out there to document diets of chicks. You know, there's the studies from Stoddard from the 1920s where they weren't supplemental feeding. And uh, 
there are some studies from you know the early 2000s where they use imprinted chips and that they put those out and then they euthanize those to see what they were eating. And, um, so they probably didn't have access to supplemental feed either. And then there's been other methods that have tried to look at mouth parts and leg parts that pass through the digestive tract from uh, the, you know, arthropod mouth parts and leg parts. But none of that was able to look at the contribution of plants to the diet. With this molecular approach, we were able to look at that. Um, so it, this makes a lot of sense in, in my mind, you know, sorghum provides a lot of energy. And, and while protein is an incredibly important, a lot of folks get caught up on protein. I think energy is um, often uh, forgotten about. And, and the, there's some data out there from the 1980s when they were looking at the energetic use of growing quail. And a neat little fact is that a 60 day old chick or juvenile bird uh, requires just as much energy as a laying hen at 75 degrees Fahrenheit. They're just putting so much energy into, into feather growth and, and uh, you know, assimilation into body tissue that they require a lot of energy. So um, arthropods obviously provide both energy proteins and amino acid, but they definitely won't pass up that, that easy energy source if it's there. So uh, we looked at a lot of other things, um, resource use in regards to temperature, fallow field use, and uh, all kinds of other stuff. But those were some of the bigger takeaways from, I think, my PhD work. Well, one of the phrases, Brad, as you know, it, that we use at Bob White Brigade is IAO, Improvise, Adapt, Overcome. And if those chicks can successfully metabolize that milo at an early age, I would say that would be a great adaptation because this year we're staring at a situation which based on our windshields at least is not a very good bug producing uh, season although I've been getting reports here just in the last day or two of better grasshopper availability so hopefully they'll have access to those arthropods as they need them. Now before we get off the, the topic of your research I want to give a shout out to your advisor down there at the University of Georgia, Georgia Dr. James Martin uh, Dr. Martin uh, either has family land or at least he hunts out here just west of us in Scurry County. So uh, always, and he's one of the top guns in quail management academically. So he, you had the opportunity to train under some good people and I'm proud for you. Uh, one last question, Brad, about that. If they're consuming Milo, that means their gizzard's got to be working. The gizzard being the, the organ which grinds up the seeds and so forth. I've never had an opportunity to study the anatomy of a chick like that, but do they have a functional gizzard? That yeah, early? yeah. So uh, <laughs> inadvertently, while I was at the ranch before starting my PhD, you know, I and, and people do this all the time on accident. They might be driving down the road and accidentally hit some chicks, and that happened while I was at the ranch on a four wheeler one time. And these chicks were, you know, probably ten days old. And being inquisitive, I was going to open them up and check out what they're eating. And they had a handful of seeds in there and, and vegetation. And so they were eating it at, you know, a week and a half old. Uh, so that, that would suggest to me that they, were def they definitely have the ability to process that. Now, how efficient they are at extracting um, certain carbohydrates at that young age, I'm not really sure. But, uh, you know, the it goes beyond just uh, the molecular approach. If you were to hit a chick at probably five days old and um, pull its crop and its gizzard, you're likely to find plant material. Um, so 
you know, take that for what it is. But I, I do think it could offer some contribution to, um, to fitness. And that, that's something that uh, we're going to start looking at in the future at the research ranch with some of our new chick research and our supplemental feed research um, to see if there is an effect of um, that, that using the supplemental feed on chick survival, essentially survival from hatching to adulthood. If more of those chicks that, um, that hatched in the fed areas versus the non-fed areas are surviving to that hunting season, based off our research. That, that's, that's something that I'll be looking at over the next few years. Well, this should be an interesting data point this year. Uh, so I'm looking forward and uh, wishing you and our chicks the best, the best luck in that situation. And uh, I believe you must've got that interest in chicks uh, all in the family from your father-in-law, because if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Palmer did his PhD on chick ecology when he was at North Carolina State probably in the mid to late eighties. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it was in the mid early nineties. And, uh, he had looked at, uh, he had looked at some, I guess you could call it brood ecology also looked at various chemicals on brain development and development of chicks. Um, so yeah, yeah, he's that the, we Paul Timbers has done a lot with chicks, um, really has been the leading force behind you know, coming up with new tools and technology and pushing the pushing a lot of ideas. And, you know, there was a paper published a couple of years ago on, on chick survival. And uh, it was a 19 year data set that they had started. So, uh, you know, they, they had been thinking about chicks 20 years ago and uh, very forward thinking. And they knew that was probably an important life, um, life history stage. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's other things that have come out of there too, with miniature radio tags that we put on chicks to look at cost-specific mortality of chicks, what, what's eating those chicks. We know now that um, typically um, snakes don't eat a whole bunch of adult birds, um, but they do take a considerable portion of our chick crop each year. About um, 15 to 20% of our chicks, at least while I was down there at Fall Timbers, were being eaten by corn snakes or cottonmouths. So, uh, you know, when you're studying chicks, it, it gives you a, a whole different um, thought process about what these birds have to deal with. You know, sometimes we might have heard that coyotes are a left-handed ally for, for quail, and we th we're thinking about the adult, but then you see this chick barely scurrying around. It's like, well, man, I bet they could eat a chick. Um, and same thing with um, smaller hawks that we don't think are a threat to, uh, you know, adult birds. Hey, the chick life stage could be a lot more vulnerable to a lot of other things. And resource use could differ. So if we're only looking at habitat use and survival of adults, but and that differs from chicks, um, then we don't really have a clear picture of comprehensive management, management for quail. We're, we're, we're managing maybe for the adults um, when we need to be managing for all those life history stages. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that probably are beneficial for adults that are also beneficial, beneficial for chicks, but um, maybe not necessarily so. And so we're starting to unravel that now. Well, I always tell people that the list of predators is a long one for adult birds, for their nest, and for the chicks. But uh, I don't think it was your project, but someone down in that part of the world added one new species, to my knowledge, and that was a bullfrog that had eaten a couple of chicks. Is that correct? Yeah, that was my buddy, uh, Justin Hill, who's um, getting his PhD now with uh, Dr. Martin through UGA's um, Martin Game Lab. 
And uh, that was in North Carolina. And that, that bullfrog ate more than one chick. I think it consumed two of our radio tag chicks. <laughs> I remember him telling me uh, the story about it. What's that? I, I was just, I think that's odd. Uh, of course, not very many bullfrogs left in West Texas, either raccoons or some of the pesticides or something, taking them out over the over the years. Uh, but we better move on for the sake of time. So let's go back to Roby, Texas. And talk to us. You've been uh, running the ship now here for about a year. Uh, tell us some of the news from the Rolling Plains Coral Research Foundation. Well, one really exciting thing that's coming up here in about a month is that our new headquarters will be finished. Uh, about late, late July is what we're predicting right now. Owner handover between the construction company and, and us. And then we're going to finish it out. Um, we're working with an interior designer right now to to get that all fleshed out and getting hardware for computing systems and all that stuff. It's going to be a state-of-the-art facility, um, really cool um, deal. It's, it's uh, been funded by a group of sportsmen, um, including the, in, in honor of uh, James R. Curry um, for the research lab. And the middle of the, the center is the Park City's Fell Coalition Education Center. And then the West Wing, which is a... Um, guest lodges in honor of the Gordy family of Houston and so each component being um, sponsored uh, in, in honor of, of someone or, or something uh, so we're really excited about that it's been a long time coming this is really I believe going to elevate some of our research and our capacity and we'll be able to host various events out there so that's exciting um, we're waiting to release a open house date we want to do that in conjunction with the field bay but with, with these construction projects, there's so many delays and everything, so we, we don't want to jump the gun, even though we're waiting with bated breath. So there's that happening. We're, uh, we're doing, a, of course, the same old research that we've always done, collecting data on, on the community at the ranch, including raptors and mesomammals and small mammals and, uh, of course, quail in general. But we're also adding chick ecology um, to our data collection points so we're, we're collecting and catching broods and tagging them this year um, we've initiated a supplemental feed study in which we're broadcast supplemental feeding and, and looking at disappearance rates and and a whole slew of demographic responses um, adult survival chick survival uh, nest nest initiation rates all, all that good stuff in fed and non-fed areas we're looking at the number of cubbies moved per hour in those pastures um, looking at diets of birds in those fed pastures versus non-fed pastures. Um, we started some hunting research in which basically every hunt that we do out there, there's a technician that, that is following us with the, the headset in. And so unbeknownst to the hunters and the hunt party, uh, they don't know where the cubby's at. And, and that tracker is just listening for the birds the whole time. And um, at the end of the hunt, at the end of the brace, um, we'll reconvene and say, okay, where did we miss birds? And so we're looking at encounter rates, we're looking at crippling loss and all these different parameters. Um, basically how good our dogs are doing, but also getting estimates of, um, of, of crippling loss, which we can, we can incorporate in, in harvest prescriptions. So a lot of research there, we're continuing some offsite research with translocation, and uh, just, just a slew of stuff that we're doing. It's, uh, it, it's a lot, but um, it's really exciting. So 
And we're going to touch on some of those items a little bit later in the podcast. But uh, shout out to Clay Sisson because I sense the footprints of Clay during his work there with the Albany Quail Project. And that's some of the most cited research where they documented uh, basically what percentage of the quail does an average hunt, hunting party find. So uh, again, Clay, uh, thanks for your leadership on that over the years. Um, we've also got some new board members, uh, Brad, and, and why don't you tell us who a couple of those new board members are? Uh, well, one of our newest board members, probably the newest board member since I came in this role is Dr. Dwayne Elmore from Oklahoma State. Um, and so we're, we're getting a little different um, leadership rolling through and getting a little diversity off on the board. But uh, so uh, Dr. Elmore is um, well-versed in fall literature, prairie chicken literature. Um, most folks that are kind of in this kind of game, um, they probably have heard his name. So he's great to have on board uh, to keep us scientists in check. Uh, but we also have, uh, we have uh, 10 board members right now. Um, and by new, I'm guessing you mean somewhat recent, um, Pete Delkus from Dallas, um, who's, who's a WFAA and you had on the podcast recently, he's a board member, uh, Russell Gordy from Houston, who's also been on the podcast as a board member, Joe Crafton of Dallas as a board member and chair of the board, um, Stephen Howard of, uh, Fort Worth slash Midland, um, is on the board, Raymond Morrow, um, from Dallas. A great group of individuals. Um, Justin Trail, um, that's that's a good bit of them. Gary Cooney um, of Dallas. So we have a great great board. We're excited about um, you know moving into the next phase of the research foundation um, with this new research, new facilities, um, new capital campaign fundraising. Um, so a lot happening foundationally, but also research wise, um, and really all across the board. I'll also mention Steve Snell with Gundog Supply down there in, Stark, in Starkville, Mississippi. He's on our board, and Steve's going to be my guest here in a couple of months. And I can tell you right now, there's nobody you would rather have on your hunting lease than Steve Snell because he can troubleshoot your Garmin collars each night. So we'll get into more of that when I interview Steve. And also a shout out to Rick Snipes. Rick stepped down from the board this year uh, after serving for the first 12 years our president during about 10 years of that. And uh, certainly Rick, we wish you the best over in Stonewall County and appreciate the leadership and support that you've given us over the years. Um, That's okay, right, Brad, let's uh, talk a little bit more about um, new additions to our team out there. Yeah, um, so we've added a land manager, um, Jake Bonnell to the team. So Jake's role is specifically to focus more on land management practices. Um, such as our prescribed fire and um, herbicide application for creek repair and um, brush control, um, overseeing basically all land management stuff. And um, we have a research biologist that we've added to the program, John Purvis. And John oversees more of the data side of things and uh, the technicians and research um, team. So th those two are two new faces, but essentially we're uh, kind of we all work together. So everything that Jake does on the ground, he has a GPS out there and um, he can note where he's um, disking or where he's putting feed down um, or where he's spraying or where we burn. And then we use that, that data, we geo-reference it, where birds are using or where they're nesting or what 
what their survival is in these different areas. So everything's related. Um, we have a great team working together. And uh, yeah, so, and, and we look to hopefully grow that team even more in the future. Well, when I think of our team, I think of the phrase gung-ho and many of you, most of you have heard that. And a lot of people mistakenly think it's the idea of damn the torpedoes full, full steam ahead, a charging Marine uh, heading up against a machine gun. Actually, the, the phrase gung-ho is a Chinese phrase and its meaning is pull together. And we're all pulling together in the right, in the same direction. And again, proud to be a part of the team that we have assembled there. Brad, let's talk about some of the new research interests there. We, we hit, you hit upon a couple of them, but uh, maybe start with the chick ecology, because again, that's something that in the first 11 years research, and I'm, I'll take the blame for that because I've just always considered chicks too fragile to mess with. Uh, so, but y'all have proven that it can be done. So tell us about uh, the, the ongoing chick research that you're doing. Yeah. so. You know, I, I think about that as well. I, I always thought that chicks were super fragile until I started working with them. And, uh, you know, they're <laughs> sometimes they're as fragile as wet toilet paper. And other times when you would think that uh, they couldn't make it, you know, they, they just keep on sticking. You know, interestingly, you know, chicks can actually swim at a couple of days of age. They're, they're pretty um, resilient little buggers. But, you know, with with the research that has historically been done with, with adults, we can get a lot, of, a lot of the story about how a population ticks. Um, we can look at the number of hens that enter breeding season, what proportion of those lay nests, um, what nest survival is and their clutch size and how many of those eggs out of the clutch um, hatch if, if, they, if they do hatch. Um, but from after, after that point, the fall population we're resting abundance after they hatch we haven't been able to monitor those chicks very well so you know we don't have great information on specifically what's eating chicks versus what's eating adults as i mentioned before you know that cause specific mortality is probably different for chicks versus um, adults they have to deal with different threats they're a bit more vulnerable so uh, that's that's why we call it the black box, just because uh, you know they're, they're between hatching and adulthood, so the hunting season, we don't have a whole bunch of um, of information. That this chicks when they hatch, they're about five and a half grams, so they weigh about as much as a quarter. Um, but they they grow quick. They they add about a gram per day in, in good habitat. So uh, we don't actually start. Um, capturing our chicks until they're about a week old. And, and we just use these patagial wing tags. They're the little, little aluminum bands, essentially. They don't go on the legs, they go on the wings and uh, very non-invasive. And by the time they're a week old, they're pretty resilient. And we wait till that week, just because that patagium where we clip that wing band um, becomes more developed. It can't fly yet, so we can still, uh, we can still grab them once we put panels up and they can't evade us too well. So, you know, the, a lot of these techniques were developed at Paul Timbers, by the way, but we, we've, we've been able to adopt those same techniques and apply them at the ranch because we know they work. And, um, and we know now from some of the studies that we get some really good information from it. So uh, that's kind of where we're at on that. We, we, 
to date this year we've had a handful of brood captures we've caught about 50 chicks and um, this is no really different than dove banding or duck banding we're going to re recite them or recover those birds either through fall trapping or spring trapping or quail trapping efforts or we're going to recover that bird from hunting and so those recovery rates based off of what we know we put out there and our capture probabilities we can estimate survival and that's why folks with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and those kind of folks um, band doves and ducks. They're, they're getting returns not only to see where they're going, but to get survival estimates. So that's what we're doing um, with these, with the chicks. And um, of course, we're, we're getting survival, but also pairing that with various treatments on the ranch, whether it be feeding or, or other treatments. If you are one of our Facebook subscribers, you've noticed a couple of recent posts there during mid-June here about brood captures and also about brood amalgamations. That basically just means that uh, one or more broods of chicks may get together. And I wanna take this opportunity to shout out to Jason Brooks. Jason did his master's degree with me back in about 2005 on the Aiken Ranch, which is about 10 miles south of the current RPQRR. And Jason and I wrote a paper on brood amalgamations, but Brad, you're, you're an expert on that too. So uh, quickly tell us about such things, what they call gang broods and have y'all seen that? Yeah, actually we have um, noted some of that at the ranch. Uh, we, we noted it even more in the years like 2015 and 16, um, anything from gang brooding to orphaning and adopting and all these different things that the broods will do to increase their opportunities to re-nest. And also it, it's been suggested that maybe these um, brood amalgamations could increase survival of chicks just based through uh, vigilance kind of deal. So increase vigilance with, with greater number of birds. Um, so we've noted that um, in the past and we also noted it just our second brood capture of the year, we, we had three adults brooding Two broods together so these were two different clutches that hatched and when we went in for the brood capture they were all roosting kind of together within one little one little area uh, one little shrub pretty much and so uh that there's two hens and an adult male there and there were 20 chicks so that there's there's that and we've also noted this year when we will go in and, and do a brood capture you get these chicks of different sizes sometimes um, you don't know three or four adults with it. Maybe it's just one adult, but the chicks are anywhere from 10 grams to 20 grams. Some might even fly out of the brood panels. So that suggests that they're maybe a week older. So they're definitely getting together. They're doing everything they can to increase their um, ability to reproduce, to survive. Um, their, their mating strategy, their, the whole social system doesn't really fit any classical um, mating strategy or system. They, they just do, in my opinion, almost anything they can to make babies and to survive. They, they have to. Well, I always divide what we know about quail into two eras, the BT before telemetry and the AT after telemetry. And again, historically, we thought of Bob Watts as uh, Ozzie and Harriet, which won't mean anything to you, Brad, but for some of those that are 60 or over, a complete monogamy. And now we know it's, uh, for Bob Watts at least, it can be uh, much more uh, modern 
philosophy. In other words, I wouldn't watch too many soap operas. And we'll have to get into that in another time, but there's some really incredible research on basically, we, we touched a little bit on it with uh, Dr. Elmore when we visited him, but some of the work that's been done down at Tall Timbers in Oklahoma State about parental mixing, if you will, among broods. And so we'll get into that at some other point in time. Let's move on with um, some of the other research that uh, we're doing. And again, that's something you brought over from from Florida and tall timbers, and that's the supplemental feeding effort. So briefly describe what we're doing there. Right, so uh, we've historically had barrel feeders on the ranch, the curry um, barrel feeders. Um, and there, there's been some work done with that, but what we're doing now is we've switched over to a, a broadcast system. And, and we're just looking at, like I said, a lot of demographic response responses to that feeding. Arguably, one might um, say, well, you're feeding them, so you're going to have more birds there because you've, you've attracted them to those areas. Um, so we can avoid those kind of questions when we look, look at things like survival and reproductive rates. Um, if they're indeed more and that owes to the greater abundance, that would kind of um, you know, scratch off the, the idea that maybe we're just sucking them in. So um, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're looking at. There, there's a lot of stuff in conjunction with that feed. So the way we've designed the study, there's uh, multiple pastures across the ranch and we've broke them up that uh, in those pastures slash feed units are hunt courses. So in the future will be, we hunt the ranch systematically overlaying these feed treatments and these non-feed treatments. And we've also restructured our small mammal trapping. So we've always done small mammal trapping, looking at cotton rat response and how does that vary with quail and and, um, and all that stuff. But what we're trying to do is tease apart the mechanisms in which a lot of this stuff um, occurs. So we see booms and busts of cotton rats and quail occur in West Texas. Um, but the question is, well, what really is owing to that, that correlation? Is it because, you know, just a rising tide raises all ships and we have more rain, there's more cover, so survival is better of these adults and these chicks? Um, and for the, the uh, small mammals, or is it a food resource thing? Um, so can we manipulate small mammal populations either through changes in cover or food resources? Um, and then how does that relate? You know, Because we think these um, cotton rats are being quote unquote, quote unquote buffer species or something like that, but you know, how does that really um, play out? So, when we, when we started this study, the feed study, we just started it in, in January. Uh, we did our small mammal trapping and we didn't detect a difference between abundance in the, in the fed, non-fed areas, which we wouldn't have expected to. We had just started feeding, you know, a couple of days before. So concurrently, um, as I speak, our, our technicians are out there right now trapping for small mammals. And what we would expect is that with our broadcast feeding, we would increase our small mammal abundance. Um, and maybe that will owe to uh, an increase in population. But what if it doesn't? That, that's the question. You know? So what if, what if we feed and we see an in, increase in survival from our quail or reproductive rates, but not an increase um, in small mammals? So then, then that might suggest uh, you know, there's more of a direct benefit of the feeding than the indirect through the small mammals. So um, it, it opens up more questions and more doors. And I've heard said before, you know, is the area of 
expertise or as the area of knowledge grows, so does the perimeter of ignorance. So as we learn something, it's going to open up more questions and, and generate new hypotheses as to more mechanisms. And for us to understand that allows us to say, what can we do as managers versus what can't we do? And in a year like this, it's dry. Um, what can we do to manipulate um, small mammal populations or food resources? And is that helpful? And what's within our power? Because we can't make it rain, but there are things that we can do. Um, and so really getting back to true management roots, game management, trying to grow a crop and try to, um, trying to uh, manipulate things to where we can grow more birds. Well, the old saying that you can't change the wind, but you can adjust the sails. And so we're looking forward to seeing the results of that. And we'll be talking about all these and, and viewing all these when we have our field day, which again, the date has not been set right now, but it'll be either late September, early October. Uh, Brad, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over the Texas winter grass. We'll have to talk about that at the field day. But what are you, you started some other research out there. So give us a brief description of what's going on there. Yeah, so well, basically anything that we do on the ranch, if, uh, you know, anything, yeah, I, I want to be able to study it. So if uh, someone asked recently, well, you, maybe you ought to think about grazing. I said, well, I'd love to graze, but I don't want to confound the other research we're doing. Or in a, and if we graze, I want to do it in such a way that we can study the effects of grazing on populations. So we have a couple other little projects going on and, and when, as far as land management type projects. And when we do those, we're collecting data. Um, in relation to the response. So for example, uh, there's about an 85 acre pasture at the ranch called the Double T. It's pretty much solid mesquite. And so what we did is we went in there this, this past winter and that we started grooming that, clearing it out, um, reduced the, the shrub cover from mesquite because it's pretty much solid mesquite. It wasn't huntable um, and it was, uh, it wasn't maybe great quail habitat. So uh, what we're doing now is that we're collecting vegetation data before, during, and after that, um, that brush removal and, and monitoring its response. Same thing with uh, our prescribed fire and various other things on the ranch, prescribed fire and uh, its effect on Texas winter grass, as you mentioned. And uh, in our CRP areas, our conservation reserve program areas, they were historically enrolled. We've now removed them from that program. But, uh, I've been planting some sand plum in those areas just to really increase shrub cover in those areas because there's not a bunch. Um, but, and we know that survival isn't great um, when we're planting these bare root seedlings. But, um, you know, maybe some do survive and maybe they will grow. And so um, I'm monitoring their survival rates and also uh, when we start to see quail using those. So really everything that we're doing, whether when it comes to management, um, fire, brush removal to the um, to the sand plum and everything. We're trying to relate where birds are using in relation to that, the vegetation response um, to that management um, so that we can start to paint a better picture. Again, what we can do in, um, in situations and what we really can't. Okay, uh, we're getting down to the short rows now. If, if we were uh, sitting on our tractor in the Flying cotton field right now, so get coming down to the end of our podcast. Uh, real briefly, Brad, tell us about your vision for the outreach efforts there at the ranch. Well, you know that's something that I, I want to grow actually, and um, so we're uh, we're looking at developing 
uh, partner system. And, and we've already kind of done this with, with a lot of um, the folks that we worked with in the past, but maintaining a long-term relationship with folks. And um, we've done this in Erath County um, with, with a partner that was part of a, a translocation study, but maintaining that relationship long-term, providing the resources that we can as, as far as um, you know, recommendations on management. And what we've seen so far is that those folks that have really been adopting those practices and um, you know, uh, leave no stone unturned, as it were, when, when they really adopt everything that we recommend, we're seeing really good results as far as uh, well population. So that, that property in Stephenville, um, despite, yes, it was a translocation property, um, they've done a ton of habitat work and a ton of management, um, including habitat management from brush control to KR blue stem approaches and prescribed fire and grazing. Um, pretty much everything we recommended, they adopted. Um, they adopted supplemental feeding and, and predator control. And, and we've seen increases every single year in their program. So that's something that we're trying to replicate um, across the board. I'm trying to develop a, a partner biologist for that. And that partner biologist would help uh, do more of the on the ground stuff. I'd like to expand our um, really just increase, I guess, our brand awareness. So, you know, with uh, these programs that we offer with trial masters, the statewide trial symposium, um, of course, social media and the podcast and all that stuff really start to elevate our, our brand and, um, and maybe having adding another person for that as well. So really just to start, uh, really we're, we're, it's not expanding outwards a whole bunch because that's kind of what we're already doing. But once we really solidify that foundation, then start expanding outward, I, I think we can have a really good um, footing underneath us. I mentioned something about Quail Masters. You know, this was something that we, that fell by the wayside after the, uh, after the, I guess, the reversing the quell decline initiative had went kaput and the dollars went away. And I saw that as being really important to continue. So the foundation has, has brought that under its banner. And we partnered with Texas Wildlife um, Association on that and been able to carry out a really nice program this year. We've already done two sessions. We have another two sessions um, to go this year. We have 40 participants from across the United States and Mexico this year. And um, we're gonna probably alternate that Quail Masters with the statewide quail symposium. So this coming year, we'll be offering the statewide quail symposium, which has always been well-received. We usually get over a few hundred people um, to the statewide uh, quail symposium where we're, we're, it's an opportunity for folks to interact with the researchers, it's an opportunity for the researchers to present what they've been doing. Um, there's usually a field day in conjunction with that. So I'm excited to pick that back up. And uh, we're also offering a new program um, called the Veterans um, Program, Sporting Ranch Program, which will be partnering with a, a group uh, of veterans um, to basically train them up on what it, what it takes to be a manager and and get them credentials um, for prescribed fire, for um, private applicator licenses and all that stuff, getting them the training they need and credentials to basically turn out of there um, and being ranch ready, um, that they could be hired pretty much anywhere in South Texas, the Rolling Plains, the Southeast. Because um, you, you know, there's it's a dying breed, it really, that the quail culture, and I hear it every day, and you see it on plantations in the Southeast at the Rolling Plains is that um, 
you know, you don't get a whole bunch of folks that even know it exists or um, if they do, they don't know how to get involved. And, and so it, this is just kind of a vehicle to, to give back, but also to, to sustain um, that, that culture and that tradition of um, well management. So we've got that going on and um, I'll, there, there's just so much going on. I probably forgot a lot, just like I forgot a couple of our board members, but uh, we have a lot, a lot of irons in the fire and, um, and uh, our, our team is doing an excellent job and uh, I'm proud of everybody I work with and uh, we're really excited about where we're going from here. Well, as you can tell uh, from Brad's, uh, from our conversation this morning, there, there are a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, I'm reminded, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said the best way to create the future, I'm sorry, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And we're looking forward to, to Brad's leadership and his energy, and that's contagious to the rest of our team members. And so we're looking for great things to be coming from the Rolling Plains Core Research Foundation. We encourage you to stay uh, stay abreast of what we're doing. If uh, if you're not a, if you haven't uh, if you haven't enrolled in our eQuail newsletter, monthly newsletter, or listen to our uh, Facebook, or, or I'm sorry, view our Facebook page, uh, you can. Sign up for both of those at uh, quailresearch.org, quailresearch.org, and find out more about our efforts there. Brad, before we leave you this morning, is there anything else you need to share with us? No, it's just stay abreast for everything that we're, we're doing. Um, I think you hit nail on the head as far as folks following, uh, whether it be the eQuail newsletter or social media pages. That's, that's where we're turning out a lot of just gee whiz kind of information. It's also where we'll probably be linking a lot of the publications that we put out. Um, anything that we do, um, it, you can find it on most likely social media or our website, quailresearch.org. Um, you can subscribe to our newsletter on quailresearch.org. You just scroll all the way to the bottom. It'll say subscribe. You just enter your email there. Um, we'll be announcing various um, capital campaigns and opportunities for naming rights um, for various um, projects. It's something that we're doing right now for graduate student fellowships and, and things of that nature. But all of that stuff will be coming out on some of those, uh, some of those outlets. So stay abreast of those. And um, yeah, if, if anybody ever wants to reach out, you know, the gates are always open to the ranch. You know, we, we provide not only the, the field days, but tour, um, private tours. Um, so, feel free to email, you know, myself or, or Jake Bonnell, the land manager out there, John Purvis, all of our emails are online at callresearch.org. Um, and so you can get a hold of us there. And uh, yeah, if, if there's anything that we can do to help, we're, we're ready. I just want to remind our listeners that uh, the RPQRF is a 501c3 nonprofit foundation. We, uh, we survive on donations. Uh, very grateful for our various sponsors and our partners, but we're always looking for more. And if you'd like to get more involved with us, we would be happy to uh, meet with you, Brad Wood, or again, come out and tour the ranch. And we'll look forward to seeing y'all at our open house and our field day, which uh, stay in tune with us on our Equal newsletter or social media. We'll keep you abreast of what that date is. With that, Gary, I'm going to turn it back to you in the studio, and we appreciate your team's efforts there, and I look forward to visiting with you again next month. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Dr. Kabeka, for the great work you and your team are doing at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. If you'd like more information about the foundation and past episodes of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.